Yeah, I, I mean, it, it goes back to what's what's the underlying first principles in, in my portfolio and actually what I recommend to people if they don't have weird behavioral or institutional baggage. Evidence-based, long-term, robust to chaos, right? And then for me in particular, I got to have skin in the game. Just so, so, yeah, that's just part of the deal of being in our business. That's not obviously something that other people have to deal with because they may not be an asset manager. But it's that simple. Evidence-based, long-term, robust to chaos. Nowhere in there does it say strong relative performance to the S&P 500 over the next year, right? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say career risk focus. It doesn't say tracking error centric. It doesn't say, you know, anything that pretty much everybody focuses on because that's irrelevant to what my first principles are. And so that's why this portfolio, it's, it doesn't look anything like anything that you would ever see in the, you know, the standard, hey, buy 60% S&P, 40% bonds, and call it a day. Um, that's just crazy. And unfortunately, people are learning that, you know, being long S&P 500, 60%, and long treasuries, 40%, which was the greatest hedge fund 2.0 sharp ratio strategy over the last 25 years, like, it's not that easy. Right. And this year you're down 15 to 20 percent and your future looks pretty miserable um, just because I think it was a unique period where everyone who did that was, you know, the best hedge fund manager of all time. And I just I can't see that repeating probably ever uh, <laughs> in the future of investing. Uh, that, that seems nuts to me. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with Wes Gray, founder and CEO of quantitative investing firm Alpha Architect, and also of ETF Architect, a firm that helps bring new ETFs to the market. This is our second Show Us Your Portfolio interview, where we talk with Wes about his investing objectives, how he manages his personal portfolio, and what we can learn from his perspectives and positioning. This is another episode that might be best watched on YouTube, since there are a few charts that we reference. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Wes Gray of Alpha and ETF Architect. Wes, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you guys having me. Look forward to it. This is the second time you're on with us. Uh, The first time I think we were geeking out around the value momentum factor. But uh, today we're going to do something different with you, something um, I think that's going to be fun and we're going to enjoy. And we're going to talk about how you go about managing your own personal portfolio and how you think about um, your own investment strategy. And I think... um, you know, given just your experience in the markets, given the, the, the sort of the uniqueness of the business you're in with the ETF business, as well as other things you're doing in the investment space, it makes, I think, it'll make for an uh, interesting discussion as we sort of look under the hood and, and talk through with you um, how you go about managing your, your investment portfolio. So I guess to start, I'm going to put my, my financial advisor hat on here, and Wes is my new financial <laughs> you're my new client i love it so we're going to take the 10,000 foot view question so when you think about your you know your biggest long term long term goals and really what you're trying to achieve with your investments i mean what 
what are the goals? Is it a great retirement? Do you want to leave the money to your kids and your family? Is it just overall peace of mind? I mean, what's, what's the overarching objective here? First off, I just want to thank you guys on behalf of uh, Miss Katie J. Gray, because uh, I don't have a financial advisor and she's always trying to tease all these things that you're about to ask me out of my head because I, I kind of manage all the investments and everything. So this will be great because it forced me to actually write all this stuff down and do what you're supposed to do as a family. But, you know, what I always preach to people, but don't actually do myself. So I appreciate you guys just at the beginning of being my financial advisor here and forced me to think through this. Um, so I kind of you, you'll get the bill after. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Give me the bill, uh, and you can go argue with Rick Ferry over whether we should charge on AUM or fixed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. AUM, AUM fee all the way, baby. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, we'll have to argue whether Alpha Architect equity values in there or not. But um, all good. So, so I, I kind of break it down into like big blue arrow ideas, and then what I call tactical goals, like things I can actually wrap my head around. So for me, like the big blue arrows are just not having to stress about money, right? Like, so I grew up broke, was on the free lunch program, didn't have shit as a kid. It just, my whole life was just trying to figure out how do I not have to stress out about this? So just not having to stress peace of mind is a big thing for me. Um, the other one is, is being able to fund our business. So, you know, we're kind of all in on Alpha Architect and I like my team, I like what we've built and, you know, we're in a business that has a lot of volatility. So I just want to have enough capital on the personal side where to the extent, you know, things get rocky or crazy, you know, we don't have to fire people. Like we can keep on building and keep on maneuvering uh, just because I think it'd be a shame if, you know, a financial distress event somehow affected Alpha Architect. And then, Kind of the last one is just, you know, blocking and tackling, like make sure we can retire uh, and like pay for the kids college, um, which is obviously getting more and more expensive. Th those are kind of like the big blue arrow ideas and those could change, who knows? And then what I call the tactical goals, these are things that are tangible to me that I can kind of grab onto. Um, the first one is like not having to cheap out on flights with three kids. So, you know, instead of taking the three connections to go to California, maybe I take the one connection and the non-red eye and I pay an extra 50 or 100 bucks. Like not having to worry about that is awesome, right? Uh, so I'm not at Learjet level, uh, but I'm at, let's not red eye this thing. That's awesome. Uh, the other thing is like healthy food and nutrition. So I want to be able to go to Costco and buy whatever the hell I want in bulk even if it's more expensive than like the less healthy version, just cause you know, I value, uh, you know, trying to take care of my body and, and same with the fam. And then the third one kind of related to that is being able to afford, uh, things that I guess motivate or help encourage activity and exercise for my family. As you guys know, I don't need that cause <laughs> I don't really need extra motivation to go work out, stay in shape, but a lot of people do. So if I can, you know, get lessons, if I can get special gear, whatever it takes to kind of get people motivated, I, I want to be able to spend on that. Um, and then kind of the last one is just the ability to host like cool parties and good community events where no one has to worry about the cost because I can just float it. Um, just because I always think that's fun, right? Like you get to go to a big get together, you don't ever have to sweat about like the cost of it. 
I, I just would rather people just focus on having fun. Um, so anyways, th those are kind of like my big blue arrows and like my tactical goals of, of what I like about, you know, if I had capital, which I do now, uh, I like, I like these things. Yeah. I love that. It, it almost seems like it, it, it almost seems like there's like military sort of t strategy and tactics like embedded in there. You have, you know, your overall strategic objectives and then the tactics to get you there. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Cause I used, was, you know, I used to be in the military and, and you get tired of hearing generals say, Oh, we're going to, we're going to win in Iraq. Oh, well that's damn near worthless. Like, how about what are we going to do on this patrol through the palm groves to go from A to B? And like, who's got the ammo? Who's got the, you know, the, you know, the, the guns and the rifles and who's got like the QRP. So I just naturally, you know, I understand you got to have big blue arrows, but I like tactical because it's just much more tangible to me. Uh, so that's why it's set up like that. You know, you mentioned retirement and I can't imagine you're like going to be the type of guy like just sitting on the beach somewhere. I think the beach will be part of your retirement, just given where you are, uh, where you where you reside and where you live. But, you know, when you it, it already it already is my retirement. I'm already retired by that measure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nice. But how do you, you know, I guess when you think about your retirement, I mean, do you, do, do you intend or hope or plan to work for forever for as long as you can? Or do you kind of envision there being maybe a point in your life where it is, you know, being more retired and doing whatever retired people do? Yeah. So, so I've had the last few years, I've kind of thought hard about this and I, like I'm at a stage now where, you know, my on paper assets and my actual assets you know, I probably got more money I ever know what to do with. Um, but, but my problem is, is I actually kind of like our business and, and I like our team and, and I actually like what we're, we're doing in the marketplace. I mean, all day long, I get to talk to investors and ETF entrepreneurs. Like, that's what I like to do. Like, I would do that for free. Um, so so I, I would always like to kind of be involved in the business side of things to the extent that I'm, you know, I'm actually able to add value. I don't want to be like, the old guy who's a big waste of time and thinks he's cool, but, but assuming I can still like add value for the business or thing. Um, and I'm not stressed out about life and I still have the opportunity to be flexible, be with my family. I mean, why not? Right? Like as long as it's not causing me a lot of angst and I got good teammates that, and people that can help, you know, deal with shit that I don't want to deal with anymore. Um, yeah, I, I kind of like to stay engaged and, you know, keep the dream alive as long as possible, uh, for sure. Yeah, nice. How do you, how, I guess at a high level, um, how would you classify your approach to investing when you're looking at it from, you know, a wide angle? So, so my personal portfolio, it, I mean, it's kind of like ties to like our core beliefs as a firm, frankly, but basically evidence-based, long-term, robust to chaos and then what I call skin in the game, right? So evidence-based in the sense that, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be what I talk trash about every day, the maniac behavioral person. So everything we do has got to be based on my best assessment of the overall evidence out there, you know, for or against like a given approach. Um, the other thing is long-term, same thing. Like there's a lot of stuff that's evidence-based, but it requires horizon and discipline to stick with it. So, so I just, I anchor on that. And then the other one is robust to chaos. What the heck does that mean? Well, as you guys know, we're in the asset manager business. Um, 
And so I'm not here to be a mean variance optimizer. I need to kind of focus on, hey, I have assets that are built to compound and I know they're super risky, but so I need to have other assets that mechanically will work on average or most of the time when the you know what hits the fan. So, so I, I need to really think about tail risk management a lot more than, well, probably everyone should be, but in my case, I need to think about even more because so much of our business is tied to what the market does. Um, and then kind of the final thing, which is also somewhat unique to just being an asset manager, is it's all about skin in the game, where I just believe that if you're charging people you know, fees and you're asking someone to put their own money that they worked their ass off their whole life to earn, you, know, you should probably invest in the same things that you're telling other people to invest in. So I'm just, even though that's not really commonplace in our business, and you can make fancy arguments of why that's stupid, because you don't want to invest in your own products because they're correlated to human capital, blah, blah, blah. But it's just, I just feel like it's bad leadership to, to not have a lot of skin in the game because you know that's just what you should probably do. Uh, so those, those are kind of ideas, evidence-based, long-term, robust to chaos and having skin in the game. I want to start with maybe the major asset classes you invest in. And I guess, I guess your wife will also be happy with us because I think you've put together a pie chart where you've actually sort of outlined the, the major different things you are, you're currently invested in. So um, could you maybe just talk about just at a high level, the major asset classes you, you invest in? You got it. So, so I, I sent you guys that and uh, you're right. Katie's going to be quite happy that I actually put this in a nice organized picture. Um, we do have this, but it's not in a nice picture. It's with like, a hundred commodity futures contracts running around. She's like, what the hell is this? Um, so basically cash, right? Real estate, which in my case, like private, my, you know, my residence. Um, and I'll tell you about why that's unique to Puerto Rico in particular. Uh, tail risk, so like direct tail risk products that just essentially buy puts. Um, what I call private short term. So I do a lot of like weird, like distress deals or lending to people that are short-term and opportunistic, especially down here in Puerto Rico. Um, what I call trend equity simple. There's an ETF, you know, it's like the simple way to like get access to global factors with trend falling. Um, I use that and I also have trend complex or trend equity complex. It's basically like a levered up version of doing our SMAs. Um, so that's another asset class or basically the same. And then manage futures, which it just really to be clear, what does that mean? Because that could mean a hundred things. To me, managed futures means trading bonds and commodities long, short, based on trend. Period. Anything else is not managed futures to me. So I'm doing trend following across basically the commodity bond complex globally, um, and then private long-term investments. So like private equity or VC, what have you, and then just my own business. Uh, you know, Alpha Architect. So th those are kind of like the, all the buckets kind of from least risky to most risky uh, at a high level. And how do you think about it? I, I didn't see bonds, I don't believe, on that list. Um, how do you think about bonds? I mean, do you think given your long-term tide horizon, you really don't have any need for bonds? Yeah, I mean, this, I, I know this sounds so crazy uh, because so many people are so anchored on bonds and even we sometimes recommend them for behavioral reasons. But I, I really believe that bonds like commodities, like Bitcoin, like a lot of things, they are tactical assets that you should only own with trend. I personally think that buying and holding bonds is absolutely crazy 
because especially right now because they're low return they have terrible taxation it just doesn't make any sense to me right so so i'm all about owning bonds if they're in a trend but it, why would i want to own like especially high duration bonds if they're not in a positive trend like to me that's just crazy uh like what's the point um and you know obviously a lot of people are learning that the hard way this year but but that just seems to be like an evergreen thing like same thing like why would you ever own commodities buy and hold like it's insane to me why you would do that like if they're in a trend great own them if not don't own them you know save your capital for like under your pillow or for some wait for a trend to show up and then go go allocate to it so anyways long story short i think bonds are kind of nuts personally um, unless you had a way to tax manage them then they would get a little bit more interesting but just the fact that you gotta got to give up half of the income associated with them right off the bat it just makes them very unattractive to me there actually might be an ETF idea in there in terms of bonds and trend. Um, you know, maybe there's something there for the future in terms of what could be done with that. Um, when you look at equities, um, I mean, are you a big believer in using trend for most of your equity position as well? Or, or do you think you want to have a significant sort of long only sleeve that you hold of equities long term? Yeah, and I, I don't. So I do 100% trend following on all equity exposures personally. I don't do any buy and hold. Um, that... You know, if I didn't, if I wasn't in asset management, that might change a little bit, because uh, because I'm so tied, obviously, through our revenue, on on a big part of our business is just tied indirectly or somewhat directly to just what the market does in general globally, and so obviously, if the stock market as a global uh, entity blows up 50%, you know, our, our revenue doesn't go down 50%, but it goes down 20 or 30%, and we have a lot of fixed costs, so that would suck. Um, so, so for me in particular, I just buy and hold equity is just a little bit too exposed. Um, but that said, even if I didn't have our business, I still think that I would only own equity probably with trend falling on it. Just, just cause the, I mean, as you guys probably know, we obviously, you know, like owning equity outright is a great way to get your face ripped off ever so often and losing half your capital. It's just not something I feel like doing. Um, so, so I, I like trend following, but it's not for everyone, obviously. Um, and do you have, do you use valuation at all when you think about equities? I mean, I know we talked and we had you on last time we talked about, we were kind of at the, you know, right after the COVID bottom and small cap value had gotten really cheap. And you, you talked about maybe putting some more money in that. And do, do you think about using valuation at extremes or anything like that? Or, or do you really just stick with trend? So I, I have my, my, I guess I call it your, my tactical fun bucket, like where I can go be an idiot and like make calls and try to feel famous or whatever. I only do that with my retirement account, which is not a lot of money relative to like most of my portfolio. And that's the one area where I'll, where I'll kind of use my gut instinct. Um, and, and my claim to fame, well, my claim to infamy is I used to be a concentrated stock picker and lost my ass. But my claim to fame is that March 23rd, 2020, I said, I'm not doing trend anymore. I'm going all in on deep value. And I, and I literally transitioned my, my uh, retirement account from trend falling to buy and hold deep value. And that was obviously like bottom ticking it. And again, that was just because, hey, you know, these things are down 50, 60% in a month. This is crazy. The world's not gonna blow up that bad. But, but again, I only do that in my fund money where I know I'm going to screw it up. In all my other money where I don't want to screw it up, I just use trend falling to tactically time 
you know, allocations or what have you. You know, I do a little of that myself and I think there's something to be said for kind of doing that in your personal portfolio. So you kind of get it out of your system. So like you're not, you're not attempting to do any of that for clients. You know, you kind of just take your own money, a little bit of it on the side and you can do this crazy stuff. And if it doesn't work out, that's okay. But you sort of get it out of your system doing it. Yeah. It's a lot more fun uh, as, as well. Cause it's, it's just a lot more fun to be engaged in the, the day to day, like, you know, market commentary, the, what's going on in the macro, what's going on with Russia. Like even though all this stuff matters zero for your strategic allocation and how you should be investing, it's just too much fun. And like, you gotta have something to kind of rub the itch. And that, that's what I do. I want to come back to your list. And, and uh, the second thing on your list, I believe was real estate. Um, and you obviously have your personal residence, but beyond that, do you do any other investing in real estate? So I have in the past. And so, so right now, my, the, my real estate situation is a little bit different. So down in Puerto Rico, under this thing, it's called Act 60, which, which is like a tax deal that I'm on. You have to buy a residence here within two years. So, so I have to buy a house, whether the rents were 10 times cheaper to rent versus buy or not, I have to buy. So, so I, I have a house fully paid down here because that's part of my deal. I, I have done down here in particular, uh, like some strategic flips. But I, I wouldn't say it was a, it's not something I do. It's just because the opportunity presented itself and I was able to move quickly. But, but it, that was just a one-off. I, I, in general, I hate real estate because it's, it's after you include the brain damage, um, the stress, the pain and anguish, the audit, the, the complexity, it's just not worth it to me. Um, that doesn't mean it can't be great for some people, but I just, I like financial assets that, you know, I can get rid of really quickly. I could see every day. I could understand. I could tax manage. I keep the fees down uh, and they're liquid. Um, that's just a benefit to me. It, so real estate, I, I keep to a minimum as best as I can. Can you explain the Act 60 more? Because uh, I know there's significant uh, tax benefits to living in Puerto Rico, but to be honest, I don't even know what they are. So could you, can you sort of explain that? Yep. So, so basically the nickel tour on it, and it gets pretty complicated fast is a capital gain tax here is zero. So there, there is no capital gains, right? So, so once you come down, you get marked, you can't like, you can't have zero basis in a billion dollar asset and then live here a day, sell it, not pay any tax. There's ways you can kind of do that, but it requires a lot of long-term planning. That said, the minute you're a PR resident, from then on out, any value you add in equity, either private or public, is zero. So there is no capital gain tax, which is obviously a huge benefit. Um, and then the other benefit that's, that's kind of a showstopper for me is your income, or, or income that you can source to Puerto Rico is subject to 4% tax, and that's it. So it's not, it's not even subject to federal taxes. So if you're paying 50% marginal taxes between state, you know, feds, you know, down here, you pay four. Um, so, so essentially in my case, you know, I got paid a lot of money to live in a tropical Island. That's awesome. And it was just a matter of convincing the wife. Um, so, so it's, it's a, I would say it's a step change in one's ability to, uh, you know, build wealth and get closer to retirement a lot faster than if you're a U.S. resident. And just on the side, have you, you've enjoyed it so far? Yeah. I mean, I love it, man. It's like, I think it's awesome, but I'm not everybody. I'm, I'm obviously a little odd, but it, I mean, I think it's, there's nothing's perfect, but as far as like, if I had to put together a package of things I like, 
right? Like great culture, great people, uh, you know, great weather, tons of adventure, tons of outdoor stuff, really cool people. And even at the very end of my list, like, and you, you're not going to charge me uh, taxes to live. I mean, to me, it's like the biggest arbitrage, no brainer that ever like walked the face of the planet. But, you know, it's, it's not for everybody, right? Like there's, there's not a Starbucks in every corner, a Costco in every corner. There's not, you know, Amazon doesn't deliver same day. You know, it might take two or three days down here and you might have to speak a little Spanish, but to the extent you're not offended by just different strokes for different folks, um, honestly, I think it's awesome. So highly recommend people check it out. I think the only downside probably is gonna be the lack of hills for the march for you. That's the thing, dude. There's tons of hills down here. Is there? I wouldn't really. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's more there's more hills here. It, there's a massive mountain range that goes to the middle. There's a massive rainforest. It's the only rainforest in North America. This place is like hill century. Dude. It's like Hawaii, dude. Like the big island. I mean, it's I'm that's wow. That's that's awesome. That's good for you. You're going to be you're going to be hitting it then. Yeah, I mean, it's it's humid. Yeah, oh yeah, training down here. I, my capacity to train down here is 10x what it was in, in Philadelphia out in the burbs. Like, I mean, it's on par with like Colorado. Um, there's trails and you go crazy around here, man. Um, so there, there, you have all that down here. It's not flat. It's not like, uh, uh, it's not like Guam or something where it's just a pancake. Like Puerto Rico's actually got massive uh, elevation differentiation, tons of ecosystems. It's really interesting place, actually. The, uh, the private short-term bucket you mentioned is really interesting because that's, that's not something I've heard of many people doing. Can you talk a little bit more about what you do there? Yes, yeah, so, so again, this is something that's very specific to Puerto Rico, um, I think, because in the States, there's too much money chasing too many deals. And, there, and it's, it's like a well-formed capital market. There's tons of transparency. There's, you know, it's, it's just too easy to arbitrage. We're down here. There's a true lack of capital and, and the market's like, I want to say it's corrupt. It's just way less opaque. There's way less data involved. It's really hard to source deals. And so like, just for example, like down here, you can throw a rock and hit a 10% cap rate on residential real estate. Like in the States, that would be absurd. You'd have to be in like, you know, boarded up ghetto that, you know, you might die if you walk in to get a 10% cap rate on like a residential deal. Down here, you can do that without even like, you know, could stumble onto it. Um, so there's just, it's just the need for capital is so much higher down here. And the opportunity to, to you know, you fall into like, you know, hey, I need 10, 15% short-term loan and it's asset backed. And oh, by the way, it's tax-free down here. I mean, it's not huge scale, you know, they're like 100, 200K little one-off things, but you know, if you can make 10, 15% after tax, asset-backed lending short-term, I mean, why wouldn't you do it? So, so you know, th that's why I started doing that down here. And again, it's not like a big part, but it's just an opportunity that happens to exist down here, at least right now. So, so I've been doing a little bit of that. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and the private long-term part, you know, we had Meb Faber on the podcast and he does a lot of that, but he, he's kind of done, you know, a lot of small investments in a lot of different companies and tried to diversify his bets, you know, and take advantage of the fact that in venture, you really don't know what the winners are eventually going to be. Like, what is your approach to that? 
So, so my approach is in general to avoid that like the plague. However, um, you know, we happen to run in this thing called ETF Architect, where I literally get to see every deal that comes to market. It's like it's like the wet dream for a private equity investor, right? Like I get every deal. I know everything about this business. I run the platform. I know where all the bodies are buried. And, and so to the extent that like an operator needs capital, you know, I like we're starting this idea of like, hey, let's start up this little syndicate. And so we just kind of started one with my buddy, uh, Ray Micheletti. Um, you know, he's like Princeton PhD, been in the business for 20 years, long game player, and he needs some capital because he's not independently wealthy. So we kind of put together a little bucket together. He actually moved down to Puerto Rico, which made it even better. And so I just anticipate in the future doing that more and more to, just because I am in a unique position to, to potentially help our own platform. And I kind of have like a lot of edge, I would say. Um, so even though I hate private equity, I hate the liquidity, I hate all the costs, I hate everything about it. It's just, this is a weird circumstance where I'm, I'm going to probably start investing a lot more ETF operators personally, beyond just how our, I mean, our platform already invests a ton in them as well. But, but a lot of times they need like 500 K or a million dollars of just, you know, risk capital to kind of fund their, their, their life basically. So. Yeah, when you kind of have like an inside look at these companies, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very sensible way to do this versus, you know, kind of throwing money out there in a lot of different directions. Yeah, I'm not paying 2 and 20. I'm not just hoping and praying someone knows what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> like, like this is a very controlled way of accessing this, you know, ETF, basically the ETF growth, growth of the ETF boutique market, essentially. Yeah, by the way, given that you're a value guy like me, that if, if you're ever like throwing a ton of money at venture capital, I'll know things have gotten exceptionally cheap and it's probably, that's, pro that's probably the time to go into it. Yeah, 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 no, we're, we're, we're a ways away from that. Um, there will be an opportunity though, to your point, because so much dumb money that got sold a bill of goods is chasing that right now. Um, and uh, Dan Rasmussen always has good stats, like talking about like, you know, public, public company, uh, enterprise multiples versus private company. In the old days, you know, obviously private was way cheaper than public. So there was an arbitrage when you kind of went from, from private to public on the, on the IPO. Now it's flipped. And, and, and on what planet is private equity going to outperform public equity? Like it doesn't exist. There's too much money chasing too few goods. And so at some point that thing will blow up. And sure enough, there'll be opportunity, right? There'll be distress. There'll be, ish, there'll be opportunities. Um, and so I'll let you know when we get there, but that could be 10 years from now, uh, for sure. Yeah. It may take a long time for everything to work through the system. Um, the last question on the buckets is how do you think about sort of sizing them? I mean, are there certain buckets here that you think are more important to you and you want to be the most significant portion of your portfolio? Do you kind of have a fairly equal weighting across the, I mean, how, how do you think about sizing these different things in your portfolio? I mean, this is not news to a lot of people, but it's, I guess it would be unique in the sense that when I tell you this, you'll think I'm crazy, but I think it's actually a lot, it makes a lot of sense that I'll explain. It, it, so, so I have two buckets, right? I have the one that includes my business, but that's, that's weird because, you know, a lot, like, you know, 75, 80 plus percent, depending on what you value the thing is, you know, my, my net worth. So all the rest is kind of doesn't matter. But if we just throw that aside, cause I just, I just marked that at a dollar on my personal books. And then I just kind of focus on my portfolio. That's just the one I can look at every day. Um, 
it's, it's basically broken down into like exposure wise. I actually have 50% of my portfolio in managed futures on a notional basis. A lot of that's like using leverage on top of equity, but it's like a global portfolio. About 50% is in trend followed commodity and bonds. Um, and that is designed to basically deliver crisis alpha. So when shit hits the fan, it's supposed to like go up, right? And it's supposed to counteract the deep risk that I take in the form of like, even though I trend follow the equity, I use long-term trend. So I'm, I'm eating a big chunk of the like equity risk premium there still. Like I need something that's, that's a big enough exposure to actually offset, you know, a 50% market drawdown. And, and you're not gonna get it. Like, so if you, if you, but let's say you're concerned about tail risk hedging, like in a 50% market drawdown, like how in the heck is a 5% managed futures exposure or a 1% tail risk exposure gonna offset a 50% loss in your equity book? Answer, it won't, it won't do shit, right? <laughs> so, so the idea is like, hey, I need to balance off my big tail risk in equities which is also known as short volatility bet, like, you know, it's, it, you're short volatility because when volatility spikes to extreme levels, that, that thing gets destroyed, i.e. it's short volatility. And then I like to offset that with an equal component of, of what people, geeks call long volatility assets or things that when actually the chaos begins, they actually make money and do really well. So, so I try to balance in my own way the, the amount of assets that are long volatility against short volatility, as opposed to being effectively 90% stocks and then 10% noise that doesn't really do anything. Like really, I'm just, I'm just short chaos, right? Like I'll do well. Most people in portfolios are structured to do pretty well if nothing really bad's happening, but if something really bad's happening, they're screwed. And, and I obviously, don't want to do that. So, so that's why, again, I take a, a like basically the easy way to think about is 50% of my portfolio is in long volatility kind of tail risk management structures. And then the other 50% is in trend, trend fall equity. So basically our funds, so global value momentum with trend falling overlays on them to protect against the beta component. Yeah, and this gets back to something we talked to MedFavor about as well, which is, you know, all of us are in the asset management business. So, you know, and we have significant amount of our wealth in these you know companies we own and so we have significant beta to the market i mean if the market starts tanking we're gonna have all kinds of problems and so it's very sensible like in our personal portfolios to have these things you know with convexity they're going to do really well on the other side if things are falling apart you know and maybe in, in the asset management business in general yeah for sure but but to be frank even even if i sold alpha architect for some reason and someone just gave me some huge pot of gold or i don't even know what it would take it'd probably take more than that I would still run the portfolio like I do now. I would, I might take off some, some of the trend falling on the equity component, but I would always, regardless of the business, I would still maintain probably 50% exposure to bond commodity trend follow managed futures. Um, just cause I feel like it's a, it's the ultimate diversifier basically. You have a lot of uh, things in there that'll probably do well in this type of environment, you know, as is, but I have to ask about it because it's probably been the most popular topic on our podcast recently, and this is the idea of inflation. So do you think about your portfolio any differently in a world of inflation? I mean, have you made any changes to, to try to deal with potential inflation in the future, or do you just sort of set up a robust strategy for all the different economic environments and kind of leave it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a silly question, right? Like if you're, if you've built out a solid strategic investment plan, under the guise that you don't know what the future will hold, 
like when the future unfolds itself, you'll continue to not know what the future hold. So why would you change the plan, right? Like you, you, that means you didn't have a good plan to start off with. So my portfolio is obviously designed structurally to be all weather, right? Like it is designed and, it, and I will not change anything. There's nothing that I can even foresee in, in the, the macro landscape, anything that, that would change how I manage my portfolio because it's already designed to deal with all the potential chaos and uncertainty of the future. Um, so I, yeah, I don't, I don't do anything different because that's why I built it like it's built in the first place. It's, you know, it's heavily based on trend following a lot of it, getting short bonds, your long commodity complex, and you've just been riding that trade, making money every day. Um, and you know, while the market, you know, stocks and bonds have totally shit the bed. So, I mean, I'm not changing anything. Uh, you know, why would you? I'd be crazy. You're going. You're going more. You're allocating more to managed future. <laughs> yeah, I, I just. Yeah, I'll, I'll just go. Yeah, I'm just. I'm just doubling down on what I already knew works. Uh, why would you change anything? It, it's, it's just. It's weird to me when people are like, "Oh, now I, I need to get this trend following stuff." I'm like, dude, like you needed trend following like six months or a year ago. But we wouldn't have known it was going to work six months a year ago from now. You need you need it all the time. That's the point. Like like you, you can't be chasing your tail after every big event or every big scare. You know it's just crazy to me that people operate like that. But I don't know. That's just how it's set up. By the way, and, j and just to be and just to be clear, this is an internal managed future strategy, or are you actually placing money with other managers? Okay. Yes. No. 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 So. Sorry. So yeah. So so we do it internally. So we have tried to figure out how to deliver. So we've been running futures products for I don't even know. Like we've been audited by the NFA three times, and it's it's probably been eight nine years at this point. The the issue with futures is they have a different regulatory body, um, and there's also a bunch of limitations within the Forty Act and to be able to leverage your capital efficiency. So I can't with a straight face. Like we would have done it already, right? If I thought there was a way to deliver affordable exposure via 40 Act product to the public in managed futures, it would already been done, but I can't. So the, we do that internally via SMAs for like ultra high worth type people and just for our own account, um, because that, that's really the, the most efficient way to deliver that, that exposure affordably uh, and with the, the appropriate capital efficiency that come with managed futures. And that's just unfortunate. Like it'd be really nice if they, you know, updated the laws and made it a little bit easier to, you know, to deliver these products. Cause managed futures, as you guys probably know, like our CTAs more broadly, you know, most of the 40 act products, they're okay, but they suck, right? They're not, they don't have enough volatility in them. You can't leverage them for capital efficiency cause you gotta be fully paid. Um, it's just everything about them is just not great. So, so that your, your options are basically LPs or hedge funds, which charge two and 20, um, or you got to do SMAs. You know, we don't charge that much on SMA, but the problem is we have to run your own futures. So you'd have to have a huge account, right? You got to be super rich. So it's, it's, it's unfortunately one of the best exposures to have as an individual or an investor, but it's also the, the hardest one to get access to you know, after fees, after tax, after brain damage. So, you know, it's one of those throw your hands up in the air problems. 
Yeah, and to to your point about like you know the money flooding into like these sort of trend strategies after the fact. I mean, that this is the hardest thing. And we were just talking. We just had Adam Butler on, and we we were talking about risk parity. And you know, this is the hardest thing for your average investor in running these types of strategies. You have to be able to go to the cocktail party during the periods where you're underperforming, where you look very different than something like the S and P 500, and you got to be able to stick with it. You know, and, and that that's sort of one of the more challenging things of these. You know, these these strategies work really really well over the long term, but you have to be willing to be different. You know, in order to run it. And you know, that's that's something I've definitely noticed about your portfolio is you you definitely have a willingness here to look very different to sort of achieve your goals yeah i, I mean it, it goes back to what's what's the underlying first principles in in my portfolio and actually what i recommend to people if they don't have weird behavioral or institutional baggage evidence-based long-term robust to chaos right and then for me in particular i got to have skin in the game just so so yeah that's just part of the deal of being in our business that's not obviously something that other people have to deal with because they may not be an asset manager, but it's that simple. Evidence-based, long-term, robust to chaos. Nowhere in there does it say strong relative performance to the S&P 500 over the next year, right? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say career risk focus. It doesn't say tracking error centric. It doesn't say, you know, anything that pretty much everybody focuses on because that's irrelevant to what my first principles are. And so that's why this portfolio, it's, it doesn't look anything like anything that you would ever see in the, you know, the standard, hey, buy 60% S&P, 40% bonds and call it a day. Um, that's just crazy. And unfortunately, people are learning that, you know, being long S&P 500, 60% and long treasuries, 40%, which was the greatest hedge fund 2.0 sharp ratio strategy over the last 25 years like it's not that easy right and this year you're down 15 to 20 percent and your future looks pretty miserable um just because i think it was a unique period where everyone who did that was you know the best hedge fund manager of all time and i just i can't see that repeating probably ever uh, <laughs> in the future of investing, uh, that that seems nuts to me. You you did mention um, that of your investments, you know, the, the bulk of the investments are in non-retirement accounts, and I'm just wondering, is there when you think about kind of from from this point going forward, getting more money into retirement accounts? Is that something you sort of strategically think about, whether it's through a company 401k plan, or how, how do you kind of view that? So remember, I, so my retirement plan is solved. It's called Puerto Rico, right? I have 0% capital gains and 4% income tax. And so I have zero incentive. Actually, if, if I have an old Roth IRA on a convert, but I, I don't wanna do any of that stuff, right? Like, why would I? Like, in the big risk with retirement accounts that people never talk about is I, I think Roths are probably maybe a little bit less at risk at this. But it's easy for me to envision a world 20 years from now, because all you gotta do is look at our budget, you know, how much money do we spend? How much money do we take in? And we all know that, you know, in the end, if too many people are voting for handouts, it doesn't end well. There's gonna have to be a point, I can see this politically, where people say, oh, you have over $3 million in your traditional IRA. We're gonna start taxing that because you're too rich and we need to pay for all these damn bills. So I think, the assumptions of a retirement account are fundamentally flawed because I think there's a huge tail risk that it's going to be retroactively pulled. Um, so I'm much more a fan of clean money and getting out of government structures because I just don't trust them. 
and, and to give you evidence on that, that was on California's uh, chopping block a few years ago where they were going to literally charge you pulling out of your, your income, California state tax, if you had over like $2 million squirreled away. And that's, you know, uh, and that sucks not for rich people, that sucks for the little guy because he's usually the garbage can guy that, you know, did saving, did all the right things. And just through compounding, he's going to be a millionaire in 30, 40 years. And those are the type of people they are going to be like, oh, they're rich people. We got to take the money from them. Like, guess what? The rich people already figured out how to go around that. You know, we're not that stupid. Um, and so I, I just personally, I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, I think it's a good idea because it's the best weapon you got. Um, I think insurance is pretty good mainly because they're hugely corrupt and, and I believe in the corruption of the government. So, so I feel like that lobby will be around a lot longer and be the last one to ever get taken down. So there's a lot of like, if you can get the fees down, there's a lot of interesting tax games you could play with insurance wrappers like annuities, uh, life insurance, or what have you. Uh, th those I think would be more interesting, you know, retirement, because I feel like they're more insulated from government, you know, renegotiations than a lot of other tax deals point that you made earlier about like you know you immediately gave yourself like a huge raise by moving to puerto rico really resonated with me and then i didn't even think about the implications of that effectively is like a you know without any capital gains it's a, a, you know equivalent to like a, a roth ira yeah it's on on steroids it's basically a roth for all your assets um yeah and then the other one, the the 4% deal is like, it's like a traditional 401k for like 90% of your income. Cause you just, you go from 50% to 4%. So it's, it's equivalent to like deducting like 90% of, of your income, right? So I mean, it, it, it is like the retirement plans, like 10 X, um, not, not to mention you get a compound in on all that too. So it's, if you do, if you pull up a spreadsheet, and you have specific financial goals like a lot of people don't realize this but like taxes are such a big cost it's unbelievable like it's not even like you know rick ferry you know he's a marine so i can talk shit about him but he's a great guy but you know he's always arguing about like a bip here or bip there but let's talk about the 500 bips or you know or yeah you know let's talk about that like like the u.s government is the biggest fee you will ever pay by magnitudes beyond anything else in your portfolio. You could pay two and 20 all day and that's cheap compared to what the U S government carry cost is. Right? So that, that is fundamentally something that you have to solve. And, and that's something I learned from just hanging around a lot of rich people being broke is they're all rich because they figured out how to compound tax deferred and keep the actual money they make. But, but if you're just hitting W-2 and you're working your ass off and then you finally make it and now you're paying 50% of it back to the system, you're, you're, ne you're in the hamster wheel forever. You're never going to be able to, you're never going to be able to get wealth, right? It's, it's not going to happen. Um, and so you, if you want to ever exit that path, you got to figure out a way to minimize your tax burden. And, and, and that's a business is a great way, right? Because that's basically tax deferred long-term capital gains compounding, uh, which is awesome. So you gotta either start a business, you gotta do a structural move to like a, you know, a place like I got. Um, really, those are your two answers. Start a business, compound tax deferred, or move to a tax haven 
Otherwise, you're screwed. Or be rich. But being born rich is also the best way to get rich. But unfortunately, you know, most of us aren't in the lucky sperm club. Uh, so we got to do it the old-fashioned way. And so, so we got to think about other techniques to get there. Because uh, we just, you know, we're not being, we're not blessed with, uh, you know, being born into the, into the family, I guess you'd say. Is there anything you can think of with your portfolio that you're, you know, you're doing the way that you're managing that you wouldn't recommend to the average investor? And I'll give you like one thing that you may or may not agree with. So tell me like, you know, like the trend following, like with trend following, there's, there's like the, there's two failure points. And we talked about this with Jim O'Shaughnessy, um, just, and this was more with active investing, but you know, there's the failure point of the strategy underperforming and the investor making the wrong decision when the strategy is underperforming. And then there's also just what can happen with the overall market. The market can go down and then the investor can make a bad decision just because of the, the losses. I mean, hopefully trend following helps avoid the worst of those losses. But then, you know, a lot of trend following signals, they actually aren't right and they get whipsawed and you end up, you know, if, if someone's looking at it that closely, they're thinking, well, what could I have done if I would have just stayed invested? So like, you know, with trend following, is that something you think I mean, I know you run trend following strategies within an ETF wrapper, so obviously you strongly believe in that. But, you know, do you think most in average investors should be be doing this? So uh, I do, but it's all about the assumptions, right? So my first principles on this thing is evidence based, long term, robust to chaos. All those basically imply discipline and understanding what the heck you're buying and why, right? And it's evidence-based. So if you go look, we actually did a post, it's called like trend falling, the epitome of like pain or something like that, right? And, and we already know that if you trend follow 70, 80% of the time, you're gonna get whipsawed. So 70, 80% of the time, you're gonna hate yourself. But the trade-off is you, you're robust to chaos, right? And so for me, I think it's just a matter of can you answer these questions? Are you an evidence-based investor? Are you long-term focused or are you a benchmark hugger, right? Do you want to build a portfolio that's robust to chaos or a portfolio that just, you know, is, sounds like what everyone else has at the cocktail party, right? If you can answer those questions definitively, yes, I'm evidence-based. Yes, I don't care what the benchmarks are doing. And yes, I care about a portfolio that's 20-year worthwhile, not two-year worthwhile then I do think everyone should have portfolios like that that include trend following. However, as you guys know, and, and like that's fantasy world, because it, it says that, oh, we're all like nice disciplined people that don't eat donuts and work out all day. Um, yeah, right, that doesn't happen. That's why you know 80% of Americans are like obese. So the reality is if you can't conform to my assumptions of being disciplined, to the process, being evidence-based, et cetera, then yeah, that's probably not a good idea. You should probably just go buy 60, 40 Vanguard funds and call it a day, and you'll never feel bad about it because when it's blowing up, well, everyone's blowing up. When it's making money, you're gonna say you're smarter than all the active investors, right? So um, it, that, that, that one I say is, it depends on the assumption. The only one that I would say, even with those assumptions, that's just not a good idea and I'm just uniquely in a position to do it would be that private equity component. Like I, I would not recommend anybody do private equity uh, at all, uh, even if you are evidence-based, long-term thinking and robust to chaos, 
because I think in general, in most circumstances, the fees, the illiquidity, the complexity, the taxes, all the, the, the baggage that comes with it, it's, it's basically never a good idea. Um, except, again, in the unique case that I have where, you know, in small quantities with direct access to the deals, unique perspective on the business, it might make sense for me to do it. Uh, arguably, that could be considered my worst investment idea too. Um, but trend following, I actually think, is a great idea for most people. The problem is they just need to kind of learn and understand and get educated in the in the dark arts of trend following, unfortunately. To your point, I mean, you guys do as good a job of that as anyone. You know, one of the things you'll see with a lot of investment managers, they, they'll kind of sweep under the rug the bad things that can happen with a strategy. You guys are very upfront about like, here are all the horrible, awful things that are going to happen to you if you were to follow this strategy. And if you can't stick through it, you're not going to make it. Um, it's, it's, you've done a really good job of flipping that around, I think, and really educating people about what your strategies are. Yes. And, and, that's, and that to me is just common sense because ever, it's not hard. Like anyone with half a brain and Excel spreadsheet can go do back tests on trend following on every asset class that's ever walked the planet and be like, holy cow. I basically get most of the return with half the drawdown. I should do that. Um, it's like a duh, right? The, the problem is that's not the hard part. The hard part is sticking to it in the behavior. And so that requires like a deep understanding, a deep endowment effect, and a deep appreciation for just how bad and just how ugly and painful this whole like relative performance and like careerist thing can be. Like people discount that too much. And so, well, if you want to solve that, just run towards the fire, right? Like, let's just, let's just directly address the elephant in the room. This sucks. Like, you know, buckle up, buttercup. Uh, you know, that's just how life is. And we're just going to tell you how it is. And if you're cool with that, you understand it. Well, guess what? This is the greatest idea that you'll probably ever run across. And welcome to the team. Um, but if you can't get your head wrapped around it, like, it's just, it's not going to be a good fit. Even if it's the best idea on the planet, it, it, for certain people, it's probably the worst idea on the planet. Uh, that's cool, you know, all good. You had uh, mentioned that you started, when you started investing, you were, you know, scouring the raging bull message boards, looking for the hot micro cap stock probably and picking stocks and, you know, learning, learning the hard way about, uh, you know, trying to pick stocks uh, qualitatively. But, you know, when you think back to what maybe some of your biggest mistakes have been, but maybe more importantly, what you've learned from them, what would you sort of point to? Well, that's easy. I mean, basically just overconfidence. So concentrating my big downfall, like one of the reasons I got so excited about investing uh, is, you know, I made a lot of money with huge returns way early on, basically betting on like essentially what maps to penny stocks, like deep value, small micro cap value deals. It killed it, right? That's after 2000, the bubble breaks. And I didn't know this after the fact, I was just living through like the greatest small mark or small value factor run of all time. I just was in the middle of that thinking I was a genius and it kept compounding on itself. And I, and I kept getting more concentrated. I was hundred percent in like a handful of like less than 50 mil, you know, small cap, Ponzi scheme stocks like Bitcoin investors today. Like I lived like a Bitcoin crypto person. And so I've seen that how that rodeo plays out. 
and that that's what happens, right? Like you have great success, you think you're a genius, you double down. This is the only thing that makes money. Now I'm all in on this one trade, and now I'm super concentrating this one trade. And then you end up with like, what is your portfolio? Well, it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, and and a few shit coins. And, and you and you look at people like I don't look at people and say, God, they're crazy. I look at those people and think, I feel sorry for you, bro. Cause that I did that. Like I, I unfortunately can, I did the exact same thing. I understand psychologically how you end up in that position. But unfortunately that same psychology of how you end up in that position is also how you end up not doing that in the future and why your portfolio will look a lot more like mine, right? Like very diversified, tons of weird things everywhere, you know, tail risk or balanced, like, you know, it's just the nature of investing though. So, yeah, and I'm not really sure you can tell people. They just gotta, unfortunately, you know, get burnt by the fire and learn it the hard way, like I did. Yeah, I had my—I certainly had my share of those as well early in my in my career. Um, yeah, I wanted to, um, as, as we wrap up, we wanted to sort of discuss with, when we do these, we always want to cover the idea of, you know, investments are not just necessarily things that produce great financial returns. And so we wanted to talk about like, as an example, um, you know, I bought a racing sailboat a long time ago and, you know, that's about the worst investment you possibly could make from a financial perspective. I mean, I think that thing, you know, I pretty much just have to dump money into that thing on, on a regular basis, but I've gotten a lot of benefit from it in my life in terms of having my friends out there and you having a beer with them and doing those types of things. And I'm wondering if there's anything like that in your life and anything where maybe it wasn't the greatest financial investment, but you feel like the benefits were well worth it yeah i mean so the problem with me is i i kind of grew up like a depression baby and so so like i was just cultured to not want to spend money because that always equalized pain and not and i having to worry about it even more right so and, and i can't change my wiring so even today like i you know i could i spend money on on everything that i could possibly want but the problem is i just and I don't know, maybe I just got a hard wiring issue, but I just don't want a lot of stuff that, that, that is expensive, right? Like, like what I like is I like, I like sports and adventures. I like good food. I like good gear. But, you know, nowadays because of technology and efficiency with China and like there's so much, you know, variety out there. I mean, you could buy the best food, the best gear, the best exercise stuff, the best everything. It, what is it? It's an extra 10 grand a year or something. You know, it's, it's just the problem is I, can't, I haven't found myself engaged in, act, in, a, in an activity that's super expensive, uh, I guess, fortunately. Like, and I, I would I would love to find one. I just by nature don't have any, man. Like I, you know, I like golfing, but, you know, I live on a golf course. I pay my annual dues. It's just it's expensive. But it's not crazy. It's like five grand a year. Um, and I get unlimited golf, right? Okay, great. I, I go golfing. That's the only habit I have that's kind of a outreach. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I don't have expensive taste, unfortunately. Uh, it's like, I can't even find a way to spend the money and light it on fire. I would love to. I just, it's just not my personality. I don't have anything I like to do that costs a lot of money, which is, you know, it just is what it is. Well, you're, you're probably better off that way. You know, they always say you want to be the guy that knows the guy that owns the boat, not the guy that owns the boat. So uh, your, your situation is probably the better one than mine. You can go out anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I love boats. I love fishing. But, but the problem is I hate working, right? And, and I hate the brain damage of owning assets. So, so for example, like fishing, 
right? Like, like I, I've always thought like, man, I because I actually love fishing, right? Like I used to want to be a professional bass fisherman way back in the day. My uncle was a sport fisher in Cabo San Lucas for 40 years. Love obsessed with it. If I had, if I had more time, that's one thing. If I had more time, I might, I might do a little bit more, but like I, I went out with a guy here and yeah, he charges like for everything. Like it was like, end up being like 400 bucks a person, but he does all the boat, all the cleanup, it, like everything. You just show up, drink beer, drink water, you know, fish for Dorado, Marlin and have fun. And it's 400 bucks. And I'm thinking like for $400, even if it was a thousand dollars, why would I want to ever do this myself? Like I would pay someone $2,000 to not have to take care of a boat not have to clean the fish, like not have to deal with like getting the government licenses that, you know, I go stand a line for 10 hours. Like oh. it's just, I'd rather just rent it. I think I saw the pictures of that, that day, that, that catch you guys had, it was all the fish on the, like on the table. Oh yeah. Yeah. We had, uh, I mean, I call them the, yeah, I call them Dorado, but, but cause that's just what, uh, what Mexicans call them. And I'm, I'm used to that from fish with my uncle down there all the time. But, but, you know, a lot of people call them mahi-mahi. I think that's Hawaiian or something. But it's, you know, the big, the big green fish. And what it is, they got uh, big, like, seaweed patches out here. It's called sargazzo. It's actually a major problem with, like, the beaches and, like, the general of the Caribbean right now. They're trying to figure it out. Um, but what you do is you go find these sargazzo patches, like, out, you know, five, ten miles out. And you literally just start trolling bait around them. And Dorado are, like, heavily, they're really into schooling. And so once you catch one on the troll, like you reel it up to the boat and then all the other ones will start schooling on you. And so literally you take bait, like right, like they're right off the boat. You put it on the hook, throw it over and you'll see them like go screaming by, bite it and like start ripping out line like, Woo! and like, I mean, it's crazy, dude. Like we, we literally had three of us in the boat. And at one point I was double fisting rods because like the captain's like, dude, I gotta go gaff this one, hold this line. So I'm like double fisting like pen pen internationals here, like like trying to hold on to these damn Dorado. It was just it was epic, man. And and we just had to stop because we limited out. We we're just like, hey, we don't want to fish the thing out. It was crazy. Uh, so there's good fishing. Yeah, and those and those fish like getting those on the boat. It's a it's tough. It's like gives you a really good arm workout, and it's like physical. You're sweating. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, big game is, I mean, those are Dorado. They're pretty small here, but I mean, if you're ripping like a 50, 60 pound Wahoo, or if you hook into a Marlin, I mean, they literally have chairs and like specialized belts. It's ours, dude. Like, like my uncle's forearms, like if you see his, his forearm muscle, he looks like Popeye because he's, you know, from cranking the reels over 40 years. I mean, I mean, it, it's a serious workout. It's not like bass fishing or, you know, trout fishing. It's, you know, you use a bass for bait when you're out big game fishing. We used to drop, uh, you know, five, 10 pound tuna, uh, you know, as the bait for Marlin. And, and you're like, that's that, that used to be the biggest fish I ever caught. Now I'm going to use it as bait. Like, this is good to go. I could get into this, man. Like <laughs> it's, you know, big game fish is awesome. I love it. So if you guys come down here, we'll hit it. I'll take you out. So we have one, um, closing question. I'm going to ask it, um, Wes, and then, um, so if you had to impart, and we didn't get a chance to ask you this when you were, when you first came on the podcast. Uh, so this is our, like our new standard closing question and you can go anywhere you want to go with it. So if you can impart one lesson 
that you that you have learned, you know, from building your portfolio to the average investor, um, what what would that be? That one's actually pretty easy. I would just say know what you own, even if it's like delegated through an investment advisor. Like I, I think it's always a bad idea when the client's just like, oh, you're the investment guy, deal with it. I think fundamentally you have to know what you own, period. And then the second one is do whatever you can to keep the fees and the taxes to a minimum, right? If you just do those two things, know what you actually own and why, I should probably add that, and then keep your fees and taxes to a minimum, it's all good. Um, and as far as investment philosophy, it's also simple. Buy cheap stuff, buy trunks, strong stuff, and follow trends. Like, you know, I could do it in one sentence. Um, so investing is frankly pretty simple. It's just people always, you know, they don't follow the basic rules for some reason. It's, it's crazy to me, but uh, in theory, it's easy, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, Doesn't have to be overcomplicated. A lot of times simple is obviously, uh, you know, can be better. No, 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 exactly. Simple is beautiful. And, and that's, why the, that's why there is beauty in like Vanguard in, in the sense that at least people can understand what they know the fees are very low, the taxes are very low through the ETF wrapper. So it's, it frankly, it, it abides my, by my basic guidance there because it's, because they can check those two boxes, which is probably the most important boxes uh, most people should have. All right, Wes, well, listen, thank you very much for joining us. This has been great. Um, we appreciate you opening up your, your personal books, um, the financial advisory bill, tell Katie that, you know, it won't be too bad when I send it across. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fired on over. The problem is it's not it's not tax deductible, man. You have to charge me as a consulting fee or something. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, let's see. I'm always thinking about taxes, man. Uh, <laughs> oh. I haven't I haven't added any value here. So, uh, but if people want to learn more about uh, Alpha Architect and you know follow you on Twitter, um, you can always. Where can they go? You can tell the audience here. Yeah, just just alphaarchitect.com. Uh, or you, can, you know, Twitter at twitter.com slash alpha architect. And then if you want to launch ETFs, you go to ETF architect. Those are the kind of three main places you can, you can reach out to us. All right, Wes, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Man. Thank you. You got it. Appreciate it guys. Hi guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of excess returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practical quant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.